Jessica Stepman. I'm Amber Duke. I'm Will Chamberlain. I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So per usual, we have a packed lineup for you, um, both domestic and foreign, uh, in today's show. First, uh, Amber is going to explain uh, the her report, um, the special counsel report on Biden, both uh, in terms of legally and politically, and the Biden response, um, the, the Biden speech response to that report. Um, then we're going to turn to Will, and we're going to give an update on the many Trump legal matters uh, before the country. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the Putin interview with Tucker Carlson. Um, and then we're going to close out uh, with Ben talking about uh, how this this uh, executive order on settler colonialism um, really is a representative of the kind of, of domestic wrong think uh, going global. So um, with that, I'll turn it over to Amber. All right. Thank you, Inez. And yes, the special counsel that was assigned to look into Biden's retention of classified documents released his report on his investigation last week. Uh, Robert Hur determined that Biden did willfully retain uh, classified documents and had mishandled them, as well as sharing national security secrets with his ghostwriter, who then arguably engaged in obstruction of justice by deleting audio tapes that contained Biden uh, telling him these state secrets. However, Robert Hur also concluded that he would not recommend prosecution of Joe Biden because a reasonable jury would not convict him on account of him having significant memory issues that would lead a jury to conclude that he was merely a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory who was basically not capable of either uh, defending himself or um, not capable of remembering the uh, crimes that he supposedly committed in service of retaining these documents. So um, I guess legally it was a win for Biden in the sense that it ruled out the uh, possibility of the DOJ moving ahead with prosecution. But politically, it was a disaster because this was basically the first official government channel that has publicly raised questions about Biden's mental acuity and his ability to be president. I think it's fair to say that if a special prosecutor um, or special counsel is saying that he's a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, those are not typically the descriptors that you would use to or want to use to describe a president of the United States of America. Now, this report was first given to the White House um, last Saturday, so uh, nearly a week and a half ago, and uh, they waited until he released the report publicly to issue their response, which was to trot Biden out in an emergency press conference on Thursday night with about 15 to 20 minutes notice that he was even going to give this press conference. And I suppose whoever's idea it was, whether it was Biden himself or a member of the administration, was hoping that he would be able to go out and give a cogent response to this and strike down the accusation that he has a poor memory, that he is struggling with his, with his mind and with his cognitive ability. And the exact opposite happened because during this press conference, he started talking about um, the report's indication that he did not remember when he served as vice president or when his son, Beau Biden, died. And he reacted angrily to that second accusation, saying that he would never forget when his son died because he every day wears a rosary that his son gave him around his neck. 
and then promptly failed to remember where that rosary was from, only being able to remember the name of the church as Our Lady dot dot dot. He could not complete that. And then later on during a question and answer period, he talked about the war in Gaza and suggested that the president of Mexico had to open his border to allow humanitarian aid to get into Gaza, um, confusing the president of Mexico with the president of Egypt, al-Sisi. Um, and uh, he got eaten alive by the press in that press conference, by the way. They were not afraid to ask him about recent statements where he claimed to have recently met with a long-deceased German chancellor as well as a deceased French leader as well. Um, so moving forward, there's basically two directions that the White House can go here, and it seems like they've chosen um, the first route, which is they can uh, somehow claim that Biden's memory is fine, that there's no issues here, that Robert Hur was either exaggerating or acting beyond the scope of his duties by describing these mental lapses during Biden's five-hour interview with the DOJ, which also opens them up. Uh, to the idea that Biden is fit for prosecution, that a jury could be convinced that he had willfully retained these documents, which, by the way, come from back when he was a senator, which he had no declassification authority and shouldn't have even be taking these things out of a skiff, let alone to the Penn Biden senator's home in Wilmington. Um, or they can take the second route, which is to basically have a victory lap over the fact that Robert Hurd doesn't want to move forward with charges or wouldn't recommend charges. But that would be tacitly accepting the fact that Robert Hur um, made these statements about Biden's memory. They would be basically giving into the idea that Robert Hur was correct because, again, the only reason that Robert Hur said he would not recommend charges or prosecution is because of the fact that a jury would likely not convict, not because the evidence isn't there and not because Biden didn't do what he was accused of. Um, there's also been more questions raised now about whether or not this report will be sort of the anchor for the Democrats to use to replace Biden in the nominating process for the 2024 election. Politico's editorial board just released an article talking about the process that they would have to go through. They basically accepted that you couldn't force Biden out. He would have to step aside um, and then basically choose his successor in a brokered convention at the Democratic National Committee. But while major media outlets are now coming on board to the idea that Biden is in fact mentally impaired and can't handle the rigors of president. You have just as many members of the media, um, White House officials and Democratic officials standing by the president and just accusing uh, Robert Hur of overseeing a political hit job. So with that, I'll turn it over to the group and see what everyone thinks the next steps are in terms of the fallout, mostly political from this special counsel investigation. Yeah, um, I think that, I mean, obviously the, the right answer for the country is that Joe Biden should resign. It's simply not safe to have a guy who's in early stage dementia running the country. And I think that's what that's the best way to understand what you're seeing. It's, it's kind of the early stages of aphasia probably where the guy's having trouble remembering names in particular and he's confusing names like i don't think he actually thinks he met helmut cole or francois Mitterrand last week i think he he just kind of confuses the name of uh who's who's the you know it's funny that i'm actually saying this is the who's the french president macron um he's confusing macron for Mitterrand or something like that uh but that's it's a really consistent thing like he's confusing egypt for mexico he can't remember the name of the rosary where his 
um, that his dead son or the, the church where his dead son got his rosary. Uh, so that's a problem because it's like clear to everybody, not just us, but nations around the world that the guy's not on top of it, that he's barely, you know, he's not able to keep everything straight. Um, and that it's a really good opportunity to mess with the United States because the guy just isn't, he's got his own problems and he's not really in a position to lead forcefully. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's just really, really bad for the country. I think it'd be easier to beat. It's easier to beat Biden at this point than it would be somebody like Kamala Harris. But, you know, I do actually think it's important that, you know, we not fall into world war three accidentally, and it really should not be Biden in the white house anymore. But I agree with Amber's analysis that he's not, you can't force him out. He has to agree to resign on his own, own, uh, own initiative. Um, yeah, there, there is something uh, delicious about the fact that Democrats are in this bind, um, because if he had a competent or even remotely popular vice president, this would actually be very politically convenient for the Democrats, right? You have an unpopular president um, who could resign very legitimately for age reasons and and put in somebody um, you know, younger, more competent, who doesn't have the association with many of the Biden administration's mistakes. You could see how that would actually be good for the Democratic Party. But because the god of the Democratic Party is diversity, they put in somebody who is was extremely unpopular with their own voters. Democratic voters determined real quick that Kamala Harris was not a great candidate from a couple debates, right? She never, her career, her um, campaign never took off in the primaries for that reason, because everyone saw how dislikable, how, um, you know, how the, the, the word salads, she doesn't have the excuse of age, right? Um, but she's making almost as many mistakes on a regular basis as Joe Biden in her speech, just different ones. Um, she's just not a good candidate. And even their own people and their own voters saw that immediately. But because it was a requirement that Biden, because he's an old white man, that he pick a, a you know, black woman vice president, they didn't consider uh, as seriously as they should have with somebody who was as old as Biden, whether they actually want this person to be potentially step into not just the presidency of the United States, but more relevantly to the Democrats themselves, the, the figurehead of the Democratic Party. And that's the reason that they're in this bind to begin with. Um, so there is something delicious about that. Uh, there's also there was this moment, a very interesting moment after this um, after this speech that Biden gave, where the press actually turned half the press corps uh, really did start. Uh, turning on Biden, asking real questions about his age. And then the other half of the press corps, interestingly, um, has achieved a new level of Pravda-like uh, denial. So Axios comes out with a report uh, four days ago where, uh, quote, it says, he'll grill aides, meaning Biden, he'll grill aides on topics until it's clear that they don't know the answer to a question, a routine that some see as meticulous and others call stump the chump or stump the dummy. Like putting out these, you know, the, the, the grain harvest is even better than last year's uh, style reports about how Biden's allegedly so energetic and, and so on top of it that he's, um, you know, running circles around his his young, bright staffers or whatever. So it, it really does have like a, a Pravda-esque sense to it. But I do think it's significant that there were so many pieces in left wing mainstream press, but I repeat myself, um, you know, a, a, about this issue. I think the Democrats are coming to grips with the fact that this really does matter to a lot of voters, even their own voters. But um, we'll see. We'll see what happens and, and who the actual Democratic nominee at the end of the day will be. I mean, we're we're coming close to the wire here. I, I threaded out something of a close read of the her report on X or Twitter. So I'll cabin most of my comments on the substance of the report uh, for X. 
That said, a, a couple things worth noting. Uh, the her special counsel report notes that Biden's mental acuity was at issue dating back to 2017. So we're talking six or seven years ago, based upon the recordings they heard of his conversations with his ghostwriter, a ghostwriter who, by the way, deleted some of those audio files, but the DOJ wouldn't charge with obstruction. Uh, I'm sure Donald Trump's ghostwriter would be treated exactly the same. Uh, even dating back six or seven years, he had obviously more than lost his fastball, I think is notable. To me, this strikes me, though, as the quintessential DOJ work product here. On the one hand, they have the kind of the kiss of death for Joe Biden, which is you're lacking in mental acuity and you broke laws. On the other hand, they're saying they won't bring charges because we wouldn't put a senile old man in front of a jury, which is questionable, by the way. I mean, they're making a political judgment, essentially, about what would happen in a prosecution. And then by the same token, they're trying to still draw a distinction between Trump and Biden. When Biden was senator and vice president when he took these documents, not a president. So they're kind of splitting the baby several different ways here. And it always goes back to the DOJ trying to protect and insulate itself as an institution ultimately. But this does provide one of many outs, I think, to ultimately jettison Joe Biden. I too, like Amber, I saw that Politico headline and article. And the fact that they are actively laying out right now and telegraphing what might happen, I think suggests that they will jettison him ultimately. Who the candidate ultimately is, uh, we'll have to see. Last but not least, the fact that Joe Biden didn't come out and speak during the Super Bowl, I think, speaks volumes about what he and his handlers believe about what happens when he's going to be exposed to the light. And we'll see, by the way, when House Republicans, if and when they obtain the recordings and transcripts from the special counsel interviews with Biden, what kind of imagery that ultimately presents. I suspect there's going to be devastating footage to come. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a really good point, Ben, by the way, about the fact that there is an element of illegitimacy to them weighing in on Biden's uh, mental state uh, when anyway, um, we'll, we'll maybe hit that in, in final thoughts. But for now, let's uh, let's turn to Will to talk about uh, the Trump, the other half of the legal battles, the legal warfare in this country, uh, update on Trump's many legal battles. All right. Yeah. So plenty of going on this week. I think the, the biggest event was the Supreme Court. Um, oral argument on the case on removing Trump from the state ballots in Colorado, and basically the question of whether the 14th Amendment allows states on their own initiative to remove um, candidates that they believe have engaged in insurrection. Uh, having listened to this argument, it went extraordinarily badly for Colorado and the people trying to remove Trump from the ballot. Even Neil Katyal, my old criminal uh, law professor at Georgetown and a staunch progressive legal guy, was saying that this this argument went about as badly as it could have. Um, it's not only the conservatives that were extremely skeptical of the position of Colorado. It's it was also Kintanji Brown Jackson and Elena Kagan. And I think um, there was one commentator. I think it might have been Bill Shipley who who explained it well, which is basically the problem with this theory, at least for the liberals, is that it goes against one of their core constitutional principles, which is the idea that states really shouldn't be able to mess with an area of federal power. Um, and that the, the states need to ultimately be subservient to, to federal power. And so the idea here is because this is a 14th Amendment case and the 14th Amendment was all about giving the federal government power to impose reconstruction on the states, to impose equality, to stop them from discriminating on the basis of race. It's a strange place to look for a new authority for the states themselves to remove a candidate for federal office. 
And so ultimately, I mean, having listened to the argument, I think you're going to see, honestly, either an 8-1 or a 9-0 uh, for Trump saying that basically states do not have the authority on their own initiative to remove candidates from federal office or the ballot if they um, if there's no congressional authorizing legislation giving the state's permission to do so. Um, so that was a good thing for Trump. I, I expect that the Supreme Court will come out with an opinion that ends all these shenanigans trying to remove Trump from the ballot. As for his criminal cases, uh, we have you know a couple of interesting events. Um, the D.C. Circuit issued its opinion saying that they don't think Trump has any official immunity for his official acts, any criminal immunity. Um, that's actually a very strong claim. People seem to think that it's not, but um, there's a case, Nixon v. Fitzgerald, where the Supreme Court found that the president has absolute immunity from civil damages claims. And so to say that he, on the one hand, has absolute immunity from lawsuits for his, his acts while president, and on the other to say he has zero immunity for official acts on the criminal side creates this bizarre tension. And it also, it also opens up a lot of former presidents and even Joe Biden to potential prosecution. If, for example, if Barack Obama isn't immune from his official acts in foreign policy, for example, you know, droning an American citizen, uh, um, Al-Awlaki's son, well, then he could be charged with murder tomorrow and, and prosecuted for it. Uh, so clearly, there, I, I think that position is so extreme that I think the Supreme Court will end up having to reject it. How exactly they reject it is interesting. But what I, what I think is the big mistake of Tanya Chutkin and the D.C. Circuit, who, both all of whom are very clearly trying to get Trump imprisoned, is that they ended up taking a position on this immunity issue that is so dramatic and so aggressive that the Supreme Court will have to step in and reverse it. I mean, again, no immunity at all for official acts um, from prosecution leads to a whole slew of consequences that I don't think they've fully thought through. And then uh, finally, we have uh, some interesting stuff going on in Georgia with Fannie Willis, uh, who it's been revealed she had an affair with one of the special prosecutors she hired. And now it also looks like they've been lying under oath about the start date of that affair. They had both made claims under, or at least Mr. Wade had made a claim under oath that that affair started in 2022, I believe, after, or rather the, that affair started after the special counsel investigation began. But apparently uh, Mike Roman, one of the defendants, has will have testimony saying that that relationship started far before the special counsel even got going. So they're going to have a perjury problem, but then also it's going to create the obvious conflict of interest problem where from the outset, uh, Fannie Willis would have hired her beau to be one of the special prosecutors and paid him a ton of money so that ultimately, in the knowing that he would be funneling a bunch of that back to her in the form of paying for vacations. So that could be very bad for the Atlanta case. And overall, I think it's been a very good week, generally speaking, for Donald Trump on his cases, I think he's in good shape and and very unlikely to uh, actually, you know, I used to think he was going to be in prison before the end of, uh, before the election. I don't think that anymore, but I'm curious what y'all think. Yeah, I really agree with Will's assessment um, of those three points, right? One, uh, the, the lawyer on this Colorado case just got kicked around by the, basically the entire court. I, I agree with Will. I anticipate, I think this is going to be 7-2 or better. Um and especially there was a very funny uh, there was a very funny exchange with with Justice Gorsuch, who you can tell Justice Gorsuch is the one wasp on the court. Right. Um, and even he's acting really mildly irritated. So, you know, if you've got the wasp on the court excised it's against you, it's never, never a good sign. Um, and then the, the the second question on how much the president is, is sort of uh, is liable legally for decisions that he made while president, um, you can see the political problem there, even, you know, forgetting for a moment the details of the legal arguments, 
Um, the question is, how how is the president held responsible? Is he held responsible for his actions politically, right? In other words, through impeachment and elections, those are political remedies for when the president behaves badly or even contrary to the law. Or do do we want to go down the road of of basically um, using the law as a political tool, punishment tool? Um, anyway, uh, so. <laughs> Uh, this is this is I, I think this is also will be an interesting case, and it does bring up a lot of the um, a lot of the the uh, difficulties that were raised during the Nixon administration as well. So um, those those battles have not died, and I think it'll be interesting to see them continue. And then finally, um, Fannie Willis, it really shows how much the Democrats just rely on air cover. They know they they know the media is not going to be gunning for them. The fact that this is such a banner headline case. Um, and you're you're literally trying to prosecute the political opposition, and she thought she could do that while getting sweet, giving sweet kickbacks to her lover, right during an affair. That she thought that that would not, you know, be brought up despite the massive spotlight on this case really does show what a skewed media we have and how much the Democrats rely on air cover from it. Yeah, the Fonnie Willis case is incredible. And a judge yesterday, I believe, um, said that she could very well be disqualified because of her conduct, her ethical misconduct in this. And then in addition to the Nathan Wade allegations, she's also facing complaints that she fired a whistleblower after they raised complaints to her about a misuse of federal grant money. Um, this individual has an audio recording of her in Fonnie Willis's office telling her that she was taken off of cases by a male superior because she told him that he was misusing grant money. And Fonnie Willis, uh, a few months later, ended up firing this woman. She claims that she fired her for poor performance, even though she had praised her in emails um, to the entire staff. So across the board, um, Fonnie Willis is just in all kinds of legal trouble. It looks like she's going to have to testify in Nathan Wade's divorce case. It's just a mess for her. And um, her, of course, excuse for all of this is that you can't criticize her or else you're racist. But um, I don't think any of these judges um, are going to be buying that when it comes down to determining whether or not she should still be on this Fulton County case against Trump. I think it's notable, first, on all of the Trump and, by extension, uh, wrong think, persecuting, zealous attorneys and prosecutors throughout the country that in each of these cases, they're all uniquely flawed and zealous in their own ways. Fawny Willis, you have obviously the corruption and the, the appearance of she herself having engaged in RICO, essentially, and then concocting, uh, basically taking political acts and turning them into the RICO case of the century, and then having her lover as special prosecutor who's never done a case like that before, dealing with the, trying to bring the most complex RICO case in the history of the country and the most novel one in the history of the country. Then you have Jack Smith, on the other hand, who has routinely been smacked down at the Supreme Court unanimously. And he has these gambits, like, for example, trying to rush the immunity question to the Supreme Court when he couldn't give an explanation for why it had to be in front of the Supreme Court immediately, except for the fact that we know the answer. It's that he wants to secure a conviction of the president as soon as possible and before the election. Um, or during the election, rather. Uh, so it's interesting just how flawed all of these different characters are in their own ways. Um, as to the merits, I think as a general matter, what I'm keen to see at the Supreme Court is, does the Supreme Court come to the right decisions for the right reasons, or does it come to the right decisions for very narrow or technical or arguably 
wrong reasons, ultimately. The 14th Amendment case, it seems like, will be an easy one for the court to try to claim that, look, we are apolitical here. Let's see if it's 7281 or 9 nothing ultimately. Uh, and obviously, this is an interesting case where, again, to, to Will's point, this is sort of the supremacy of the federal government over the state. So it would be really tough for the left wing judges there to rule otherwise in this case. It puts them in a precarious kind of bind. But in the other cases, you know, this opens them up to, well, see, we weren't uh, zealous and going against Trump clearly because in the 14th Amendment case, we didn't uh, vote, you know, essentially against Trump. Uh, so what happens in the immunity case, ultimately, I think will be fascinating. The fact that Jack Smith tried to ram that to the Supreme Court and go above the, the normal appellate process is really telling because to Will's point and uh, as well to Inez's point, these are very complicated questions. I mean, these are some of the most fundamental questions about the very ability for a president to function. Uh, and so the kind of main questions there about our acts at the quote unquote outer perimeter, like trying to contest an election, you know, protected essentially uh, presidential acts. And then also, is there a double jeopardy question if you have uh, impeachment, but not a removal and a, a conviction essentially in the Senate, then can you actually try to bring a criminal case? These are very weighty matters and you can't rush them and ram them through just because you're in the middle of an election, obviously. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see what the court ultimately says if and when it takes up the immunity questions, what the rulings look like. Uh, and I think the broader point uh, to Will's point is it doesn't seem like the zealous prosecutors are ultimately going to secure their wins before the election, but they're going to try to exact as much pain as possible, no doubt, during the pendency of these cases. Um, and with that, I'm going to throw it to myself to uh, switch the topic to the uh, Putin interview with with Tucker Carlson. Um, so there, there's a kind of a threshold question. There's two separate questions, right? There's the substance of the interview. And then there was the brouhaha about Tucker Carlson doing this interview at all. Um, I tweeted and got some pushback from people like Glenn Greenwald on, on uh, Twitter that Look, this is a very tricky, this is a very tricky thing to do to interview the leader of a geopolitically hostile state to your own, right? Um, and I said either Tucker Carlson is doing a very important piece of journalism, or depending on the questions he asks, he's going to completely disgrace himself, like Jane Fonda going to to play patty cake with the North Vietnamese. Um, having watched this to an hour, 20-minute interview, uh, I think it's it's pretty firmly in the in the former camp. I think this is a very good piece of journalism by Tucker Carlson. I mean, I, there there are, he has a very laid back interview style where he tends to let his interviewees really talk. Um, he did the same thing here, but I can't say that the substance of his questions, uh, that is Tucker's questions to Putin were obsequious or um, sort of toadying questions at all. They they did push back against a number of things that, that Putin said um, in important ways, I think. But so uh, in terms of the journalism aspect of this, I, I think actually this is this is a good piece of journalism by Tucker Carlson. And I think a lot of people feared, rightly or wrongly, um, for, for good or bad reasons, uh, that, that it wouldn't be. And uh, they were wrong. And I'm, I'm glad they're wrong because uh, uh, it, it was it's again, like I said, it's a very difficult dance. You, you you don't get to sit in with these guys if they think that, you know, Putin doesn't have to grant an interview to American journalists. Uh, there's a reason he probably granted it to Tucker, he's just, uh, suspecting that Tucker would be slightly friendlier to him than other American journalists. Uh, that being said, you know, you have a responsibility not only as a journalist, but as a citizen of your country um, to, to make sure that you don't become a propaganda mouthpiece for Americans' enemies. And I think Tucker more than passed that standard here. I think he asked 
uh, good questions. And I think the interview teaches us um, not new for people, nothing new for people who have been, you know, watching the way that that Putin speaks and thinks on the on the national stage for a long time. Um, but but still like important reminders of certain aspects of his thinking. So with that, I'll move to the substance of, of the interview. Um, and I really have three main points. One uh, is that it's it's pretty clear. I mean, there are a lot of memes on the internet, right, mocking the fact that that Putin goes back to Yaroslav the Wise uh, to try to explain the the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Um, that's that's not an accident, and I, not only not an accident, I think it is revelatory of the way that Putin thinks about the Russian Empire, about traditional Russian lands um, as as he would see it. And I think that's worth highlighting for a lot of people, especially like in the Mersheimer kind of camp in America. I think overemphasize the geopolitical sort of strategy of the advancement of NATO, which Putin doesn't get to until, you know, an hour and 30 minutes into this interview, right? Um, and it's not that that there isn't a case to be made about, you know, whether that the it was too aggressive to add certain countries to NATO, whether the, the borders of NATO were threatening Russia. Um, I think the reason that in America we overemphasize this, not that there's no legitimate case to be made there, but we overemphasize it because it makes the most sense to us as a, a kind of uh, mercantile, the rising tide lifts all boats, uh, kind of free exchange sort of people. I think this makes the most sense. We we wouldn't behave uh, the way that Russia has historically behaved uh, without sort of feeling threatened ourselves. I think it's a, it's a very reciprocal um, way of thinking that just doesn't necessarily apply, or at least is not the predominant reason. There's a reason that Putin doesn't answer Tucker's question, starting with his complaints about NATO. He starts with, essentially, uh, his longing for the old Russian empire, um, and all the lands that Russia has ever at any point in its history ruled, and how much he sees that um, as as uh, ultimately as belonging to his country. And, and he feels, I think, there's a large part of the, uh, he shares this with a lot of his people feeling humiliated that those lands no longer belong to Russia. Um, by the way, this was one of Tucker Carlson's best pushbacks, in my view. Uh, he asks Putin about, because Putin is talking about how Ukraine is really, you know, basically partially Russian and partially Hungarian. Um, and Putin, and, and sorry, and Tucker asks him very pointedly or implies, so if you win this Ukrainian war, does Orban have a claim against parts of your territory because they're traditionally Hungarian? And Putin does not like that question. You can see it in his face and he doesn't answer it. Um, so there, there's also, you know, there's been a lot of commentary, including I think uh, Konstantin Kristin has done some of the best commentary on this interview, uh, which he calls the, the sort of paranoia of blaming everything um, on on the West, on American CIA. Um, again, it's, I don't know that it's, it's, is a combination of paranoia, um, but also a, a lack of uh, not wanting to confront the way that Russia itself uh, often creates both the nationalisms and the pushback around its periphery uh, and, and the longing to join the West, which is so uh, difficult now for, I think, a lot of the American right to understand because we see all the problems in our own system and we we see all, you know all the things that we talk about on this podcast all the time but um still like the that border between ukraine and poland um, between the russian system in a real way and the western system under the eu represents a four times gdp multiplier for two countries that at the fall of the soviet union 
started out with roughly the same population, roughly the same GDP. Uh, so the, 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 the appeal of that kind of life is something that Putin will not ever recognize, just like he pretends that Russia, that Ukrainian nationalism doesn't exist. But that's an important thing. I think if anyone wants to seriously think about how the US and Russia uh, can, can attempt to avoid overt hostilities, I think it's an important thing to think about. Um, and and just uh, I'll close with this. I, I think <laughs> um, there's a fundamental misunderstanding. I think Americans don't uh, don't understand how like deeply these kinds of historical grievances really drive uh, not just Russia, but many countries uh, around the world. Uh, in some ways, that's a blessing for us. Um, and, and I know I'm running over, so I'll, I'll wrap it up here. In some ways, it's a, a blessing for us because uh, it's very hard to exhort Americans to any kind of war. Americans are a very pragmatic people. Um, and I mean, we don't remember what happened 30 seconds ago, <laughs> 30 days ago, let alone 300 or 1,000 years ago, right? Starting in AD 800 is where Putin started his his tale of Russian, like sort of battered women syndrome of the world. Um, but uh, it's nevertheless, it's really important to understand that 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 kind of pragmatism is not common. And there are plenty of other countries that are uh, where those those forces still loom much, much larger in uh, in what ends up being their pragmatic decision making uh, in terms of, of uh, geopolitics. So with that, sorry, I ran long, everybody. I'm, um, but I'll turn it over for thoughts on this interview or on Tucker's journalism or the claims against him, um, any of that stuff. Well, I think that was a really helpful breakdown of the interview and especially the substance of it, Inez. And I would just um, bring up the uh, questioning, the line of questioning on Evan Gershwitz, the WSJ reporter who's currently imprisoned in Russia. There was a lot of speculation before this interview that Tucker would not ask about it because he was more interested in having access to Putin or having a, a good relationship with Putin or carrying water for Putin than he was um, doing a good piece of journalism on behalf of his country. Um, that turned out to be false. In fact, he spent several minutes toward the end of the interview pressing Putin about releasing this reporter and pushing back on the claims that he was some kind of super spy that was uh, collecting state secrets in Russia and that he deserved to be in prison for that. And I just want to give kudos for Tucker for doing the right things, what was obviously the right thing and bringing that up and and really taking Putin to task on that and proving a lot of the naysayers wrong in the process. Um, and hopefully it, it makes quite a difference. It seems like it, even just in that few minutes that he did more in trying to uh, get Evan released than uh, many members of the U.S. government. Yeah, I thought he did good. I, I mean, I think the, the liberal left was upset that he didn't fact check him in real time. But again, that that misconstrues what the point of the interview is. I mean, the point of the interview is to elicit from Putin some understanding of his motives and what he's trying to accomplish. I think Tucker did a good job of that. And then when the opportunity came, I think he asked probing questions. And as was right about the question about Hungary was very probing. I thought the questions about Gershkovich were very probing. Um, and, you know, you really got a sense of what what Putin believes and what he thinks. Now, I think he has a pretty clearly very irredentist view of his role, um, but I don't. So, but I don't think Tucker has anything to be ashamed of. Yeah, just briefly, I think this is an interesting piece of footage that Intel officials, and maybe not our deep state Intel officials, but true Intel officials who actually care to look at this probably will glean significant insights because part of it is. Putin is conveying maybe what he believes, but he also may be conveying 
what he wants people to hear. And there's a question of who is the audience here? Was the audience Americans? Was it conservative Americans? Was it Russians? Was it Ukrainians? Uh, I think analysts will probably be digging into the, these transcripts and probably not just the translation, but in native tongue. I imagine for months, if not years to come, there were certainly some very interesting uh, probing questions at play uh, and kudos to Tucker for asking them. The last thing I would say is, and granted, I've only gotten through about half the interview thus far. I was surprised that I didn't see more beyond the fact that it's unsurprising that Putin would sort of be lecturing and in effect trying to talk down to Americans and give the authoritative accounting of history. And like many tyrants and dictators, they go they can go on for hours, basically, when they give uh, lectures to their own people here. Uh, but beyond that, I thought it was interesting. I ex would have expected Putin to try and effectively troll Americans more about our culture wars. And there's a little bit of that in the first half. But I would have expected him to try to take pot shots at our woke left in a bid to kind of sow dissent in America by uh, having American conservatives say, look, like Putin's a bad guy, but he's right on this one. And then the left attacks you as a shill for Putin. I would have expected a little bit more of that. Maybe it's in the second half and I missed it. But nevertheless, no doubt an illuminating and incisive interview. Um, and with that, Ben, I'll toss it back to you to, to close us out. Sure. So there was an executive order issued by the Biden administration, I believe on February 1st, dealing with so-called settler violence in the West Bank, uh, in what's known uh, among many Israelis and Jews as Judea and Samaria, the heart of the biblical homeland of the Jewish people. Uh, this executive order came on the heels of what can only be described as an attempted cleanup effort, PR charm offensive by many senior Biden administration officials to try and curry favor with uh, Palestinian Arab immigrants to Dearborn, Michigan, because Michigan is such an essential state for the Democrats in the 2024 presidential election. But I think it's deeper and more cynical what the Biden administration has engaged in, in terms of its policy towards Israel during the war writ large. And as I've argued before, I believe the Biden administration essentially wants Israel to lose. And they are effectively trying to constrain and hamstring Israel into forcing it into a loss under the guise of freeing all of the hostages and then leading to some kind of so-called two-state solution, which I think is part and parcel of a broader effort uh, to effectuate what in effect is an Iran first policy for the Middle East. Uh, I'll set those issues aside for a moment to talk about this, quote unquote, settler violence executive order. So what this order does essentially, I would argue, is extend the war on wrong thing that we've talked about before to Israel, make it global. How does it do that? Well, essentially what the Biden administration says in this executive order is this. High levels of extremist settler violence has reached intolerable levels and constitutes a serious threat to the peace, security, and stability of the West Bank and Gaza, Israel, and the broader Middle East. These actions undermine the foreign policy objectives of the United States, including the viability of a two-state solution and have the potential to lead to broader regional destabilization across the Middle East, threatening United States personnel and interests. For these reasons, these actions in the order uh, constitute an unusual or rather so-called settler violence constitute an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States. I hereby declare a national emergency to deal with that threat. What does this executive order do? Well, to four people ultimately identified, but potentially even to 
ministers in Israel's government. The order essentially uh, smears and uh, targets, slanders, but also sanctions and actually debanks and restricts the travel of those identified as violating certain conditions. What are those conditions? Well, it's not just actually physically engaging in violence against someone at a level that the Biden administration deems sanctionable and essentially that you are an Israeli terrorist under these terms. Uh, what it does is it, it rapidly expands the definition of who's encompassed under it to say this, and I'll quote here a little bit directly, directly from Liel Leibovitz, who at Tablet has written the definitive piece on why the notion of settler violence is a total canard and the Biden administration used cookbooks from the UN and from left-wing NGOs to claim that there's this massive spurn uptick in violence of Jews in Judea and Samaria against Arabs and that it's actually fraudulent and the numbers are completely concocted. Uh, but he says essentially that what this does is to the extent you in any way sort of try to hamper the quote unquote two-state peace plan as the Biden administration describes it, you can be sanctioned under the terms of the executive order. And that is not just, again, physical violence. That's even enforcing or not enforcing policies that run counter to what the Biden administration's favored policy is. So if you are responsible for or complicit in or having directly or indirectly engaged or attempted to engage in any of the following, and it says actions, including directing, enacting, implementing, enforcing, or failing to enforce policies that threaten the peace, security, or stability of the West Bank, or if you plan, order, otherwise direct, or participate in efforts, including efforts, quote unquote, to place civilians in reasonable fear of violence with the purpose or effect of necessitating a change of residence to avoid such violence, you might be violating this executive order and you can end up debanked, unable to travel to the US and essentially treated like you are a terrorist. And this has already been seen, the effect of the sanctions have been seen and that the UK has also imposed sanctions. Israeli banks themselves have debanked several of the people uh, who are identified under this executive order. And the point I want to make is this, beyond the fact that this executive order, yes, there's the political aspect of trying to curry favor with the Palestinian Arab population in Dearborn and probably the Muslim population writ large in the United States with an eye towards 2024 under the guise that the Biden administration has been too soft on Israel during this war. And beyond the fact that this is about essentially trying to treat the 500,000 people, Jews living in Judea and Samaria as potentially domestic terrorists, equivalent to, by the way, the Palestinian Arabs in Judea and Samaria, who vastly outnumber them and have engaged in many multiples of actual violent and terroristic attacks on the Jewish population there. Beyond all that, what this says is, if you disagree with the Biden administration's policy on an unworkable and suicidal coming attempted two-state solution plan, we're going to criminalize that dissent. And that ultimately, to me, is maybe the biggest takeaway here is this is the extension of the war on wrong think to what's supposed to be our chief ally in the region. The message this sends to other allies, I think, is unmistakable that we are not a reliable ally, the United States, and you better hedge and be looking to other large powers, probably U.S. adversaries, to defend your own national interest, but also again, that this administration will try to criminalize people anywhere in the world if they disagree with the Biden regime's national security and foreign policy. That is an incredibly chilling place to be. 
for those reasons, I think this order is vastly more significant than what exists in uh, the four corners of the document itself. Um, so I'm curious what you all make of this. Do you think this is all just about the domestic politics in 2024 and trying to stick it to Israel to curry favor with uh, the radical left and with the Dearborn nominal Dearborn voter? Or do you see this as I do, that this is something that's vastly more significant than that? I guess I see it as uh, the Biden administration is in a terrible bind on Israel. Uh, the American Muslims are seemingly uh, now single issue voters and their single issue is just really not acceptable to anybody else in the country. Uh, their single issue is we should you know, be anti-Israel. Um, and so, but Biden can't lose those voters because he needs to win Michigan and he needs to, you know, there are other places where there are high concentrations of American Muslims. So he's trying to bridge the gap um, and, you know, posture rhetorically with hostility towards Israel. And this executive order is one example. Uh, his talk about how BBs went over the top is another example. But the problem, I mean, it's just really an untenable bind for Democrats. And it means Israel is actually one of our, the Republicans' best issues going into November. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember when you hear just uh, when you hear the, the phrase settler colonialism, uh, that 99% of people who use that phrase also believe that the existence of the United States is settler colonialism. Um, and in that sense, I do think of this as as uh, both what Will said about uh, the future, I think, of the Democratic Party uh, with regard not just to Israel slash Palestinian issues, uh, but also with regard to the United States and the posture the United States has towards the world. Um, again, I don't think that this is a, this is unconnected, for example, to the, the, the hardcore left that believes that we owe the world open borders because the U.S. gained its wealth, um, disproportionate wealth for 4% of the, the global population illegitimately by uh, by screwing or stepping on uh, poor countries around the world. Um, th this is a fundamentally uh, oppressor-oppressed way, a uh, lens of looking at not only international relations, but at, uh, at your own country. Um, and I don't think those things are really separable, which is, uh, again, I, that, that's why I think this does have more significance as more uh, as it becomes more and more difficult for anyone in the Democratic Party uh, not to use language like settler colonialism, uh, not just about Israel. Um, I think a lot of, again, like uh, the same populations that Will aptly described as not being able to accept a, a pro-Israeli posture also believe uh, that the U.S. was in the wrong uh, about many of our own battles, you know, starting with 9-11. So, um, so that's just something we're going to have to have to confront. I don't have much to add here, except that I uh, have not missed the irony of the Biden administration using this executive order to simulate criminalized dissent of its proposed so-called two-state solution while failing to condemn the actions of university students and radical leftists who have actually celebrated terrorism and, um, and urged the Biden administration to give way to terrorism um, for example, at Boston University, where you had um, students actually reading off a list of quote unquote martyrs that included confirmed terrorists, um, including some that had participated in the October 7th attacks. And so fundamentally, this is an administration that, um, as Will put it, is in a political bind and has chosen like the worst of all worlds in order to try to, to get around it and keep its voter base. And just to add on to that, it's worth noting there's no such executive order for the Palestinian Arabs in these areas. 
uh, or more broadly among the Palestinian Arabs, which only further uh, speaks speak to that point. Uh, and with that, I think we'll transition to final thoughts and to avoid the usual Mexican standoff. I'll just go first. <laughs> Um, I, I just wanted to add something to uh, my remarks about the, the Putin interview. Ultimately, I actually think Putin made a mistake uh, in this interview from his own realpolitik uh, perspective. I think he had an opportunity in this interview to try to uh, speak to Tucker Carlson's audience, an audience that is is probably uh, very much against the war. It's just the U.S. support for Ukraine in this war um, and is is so hostile and mistrusting for very good reason of its own deep state and its own CIA that Putin, I think, had the opportunity, unfortunately, uh, to convince a lot of Americans of, of his sort of <laughs> paranoid view of the events since 2014 uh, between Ukraine and Russia, uh, which, to be clear, I, I don't believe in at all. Um, but I think he had an opportunity to do that. And instead, um, he chose to, you know, to start with Yaroslav the Wise and every American watching that uh, interview, unless they had a very particular interest uh, in, in this region, <laughs> Uh, basically fell asleep after 10 minutes. Um, and so I think this is actually a, a mistake on Putin's part. He can give this talk in any of his own state media. He can give the two-hour lecture of his view of essentially, you know, um, Russian Empire revanchism. Uh, he can he can give that view anytime he wants to his own people in a variety of ways. This was his opportunity to talk to a potentially um, more sympathetic American audience, and he completely wasted it. I completely agree with that, Inez. And then also wanted to mention, because I forgot to bring this up earlier in that in that segment, that um, another issue that Tucker pressed Putin on was on releasing evidence that he might have regarding who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, and Putin basically declined to do so and blamed um, the American CIA. Um, and then um, in a similar vein, uh, on Monday night or into Tuesday morning, the Senate decided to pull an all-nighter and authorize sending an additional $60 billion to Ukraine, as well as uh, another $30 billion between um, Israel and Taiwan. And this Ukraine assistance was, uh, will likely not pass the House. Speaker Johnson has said that he does not want to bring it up for a vote because this was the supplemental foreign aid that was supposed to be done in concert with the border security bill. Of course, we know what happened when the Senate tried to negotiate a border bill. It ended up being a disaster. Um, but what was interesting with this Ukraine vote is how so many Republican senators described this as basically um, a, a choice between good and evil. Mitt Romney described it as the most important vote, perhaps, of his career. And it's just um, beyond interesting to see as we have this increased split in the conservative movement and the Republican Party between um, uh a more non-interventionist view of foreign policy versus still America as the world's policeman um, to hear these people describe a vote to send another 60 billion to an unwinnable war um, as their most important vote, as opposed to something that would be a direct assistance to America. Um, it seems like a lot of these people have a fundamental uh, misunderstanding of what exactly their role is as a U.S. senator. And so it was very disappointing to see. Yeah, I'll follow right up on that because I was going to talk about that very same thing. So uh, Amber covered a lot of it. One one thing that really struck me is there was a there was a missive in Punchbowl News where a number of Republican leadership 
members and, and Republican establishment senators talked about what they were doing, which is really obnoxious. They talked about how they, the small minority of Senate Republican senators who were supporting uh, the this bill, were the governing coalition of the party or part of the governing coalition. Um, and in particular, there was some statements, Tom Tillis, quote, our base cannot possibly know what's at stake at the level that any well-briefed U.S. senator should know about what's at stake if Putin wins. Um, some people around here, if they're really just being driven by the perception of their base, they should grow a spine and explain if they think it's a tough vote. It's not a tough vote for me. That was such an obnoxious and patronizing statement. The idea that you have such remarkable, either like, I guess, classified briefings that you're seeing that give you unique knowledge about what the strategic ramifications of Putin prevailing in Ukraine. One, that's probably not true. Most There's plenty of well-informed people who are able to judge what the impact would be of Putin prevailing in Ukraine. But two, you didn't actually answer the fundamental question, which is not, oh, would it be bad if Putin won or not? It's, could this money actually lead to a Ukrainian victory, which you don't answer at all? I mean, they're, they're running low on troops. They're increasing the conscription age. They don't have enough people. Uh, and you know, we've already sent 100 billion. How much more money are we going to send? Russia's wildly outproducing us in artillery shells. Um, and as five times the population of Ukraine, it doesn't strike me as a winnable war in the first instance. That that Tillis doesn't do that. He just says, oh, if you don't want to give money to Ukraine, you're, you you want to do the work of Vladimir Putin. Well, well, no. Some of us actually think Ukraine is a pretty gnarly and nasty country. We also remember how Ukrainian operatives were fighting against Donald Trump prior to 2016 and were involved in the attempt to impeach the guy. I mean, Ukraine picked a side in American politics. It's, it really shouldn't be surprising to these people that Republicans are very, very skeptical of giving this country another dime. Uh, on an entirely different note, it's sort of an afterthought at this point, but there is still an impeachment inquiry going on in the House. And uh, right before we went to record today on Tuesday, uh, Tony Bobolinsky, who is an associate of a business associate of Hunter Biden, leader in uh, his quote unquote business activities, testified before uh, the House Oversight and I believe Judiciary Committee is today. His statement has been released. We'll have to wait to see the transcript. And I thought the statement looks like one of the most compelling and kind of hard hitting pieces of testimony that we've seen from any witness to date. Uh, among a few of the things that I would just highlight from the Bobolinsky statement are one, he says straight up, and I'll quote that the Biden family sold out to foreign actors who were seeking to gain influence and access to Joe Biden and the US government. And he names among them China and Ukraine, among others. He talks about the fact that Joe had a business meeting with the Chinese Communist Party linked energy company as Hunter Biden, Bobolinsky, and others sought to establish uh, work and I believe some kind of joint venture with that company, CEFC. Uh, beyond that, he also says, the facts we're going to discuss today appear to me to present disturbing evidence, which these committees should thoroughly investigate with respect to violations of uh, not just FARA, but also anti-corruption and public integrity statutes, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and RICO, all charges the Biden Justice Department has never brought. Uh, he also notes that China essentially was successfully able to exploit the business relationship made with the Biden family. And last but not least, he says, and I quote, United States law enforcement appears to have been singularly unwilling to speak with me or to hear the facts we will be discussing today. So I think this has the potential to be among the most explosive pieces of evidence and anecdotal evidence, if nothing else, that we can point to. And I'm sure there's documentation behind it as well in terms of the entirety of the impeachment inquiry. And this is another uh, potentially 
massive and devastating blow among many of them that could lead to what I've long expected, which is the jettisoning of Joe Biden in 2024. And with that, um, that's that does it for us this week. On behalf of Will, Ben, and Amber, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.